Uh, the scripture for today is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Join me in a short prayer for illumination before we read God's word. O Lord, our God, in your mercy, help us to love you with all of our hearts and our minds and our might. Let us receive your word and may it melt into our hearts so that we can walk in your truth every moment of every day. Praise be to the risen Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. In, this, um, in your bulletin, this is the NLT version. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road, when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning, everyone. My name is Corey Garrett. I'm a member here at the barn, and I am really excited to be able to be a part of the series that we're doing right now, going through each book of the Bible and asking questions like, why is this book in the Bible? What do we learn from it? And uh, how, if we didn't have it, what would we not know? How does this book change our uh, knowledge about the gospel? Today we're in Deuteronomy. Uh, so Moses and the people of Israel have wandered through the desert for 40 years, and they're on the door, they're on the gate, as it were, of the promised land. They're about to go in. And Moses knows that he is about to die, and so he's giving a last address to the people of Israel. He's giving a sermon or maybe a series of sermons to them, placing them at their point that they're in in salvation history, reminding them of what's gone before and looking ahead to what's about to happen. Now, we just moved recently, and as we were moving and unpacking boxes, some of them that we hadn't really unpacked in about 20 years, we came across some old love letters. Now, we are old enough that our original love letters were actually in envelopes with stamps on them, and you'd actually put them in. Some of you may not know what I'm talking about. Ask me later, and I'll explain that. Um, do you think that I opened those love letters to reread them as we were moving? The answer is no, because they're very embarrassing. Uh, some of you who were around uh, back when Katie and I were dating knew that we were extremely adorable, but not in the good way. And uh, so to read those things is a little bit cringy. But going back and reading that kind of thing, love letters from when we were engaged, we weren't married, we were in a covenant of engagement, we weren't yet in the covenant of marriage, it kind of reminds you of some core things and where you've come through uh, and, and what it reminds you, it helps you to see, let's say, where you are now. Even though they're pretty embarrassing, we could see in those love letters, you know, two young people saying, saying to each other, I'm offering my true self to you. I'm in this for the long haul. And when we go back now and look at the, we see, hey, it's been 25 years almost, and we're still faithful to each other. 
When we go back to some of these old books, they're like love letters. I'm not saying they're love letters, but they are kind of in a way because in them we see God saying, I'm offering my true self to you. I'm in this for the long haul. And when we go back and read those, and now here we are, 2022, we can see he's still faithful. What was true back then is true now. So, what is the main message of Deuteronomy? We could, nothing is going to completely sum it up, but let me take a stab at it. Deuteronomy's message is that God loves you, his covenant people. He's proved that in many great ways and wants the best for you in the future. He knows your natural inclination to live in ways that are destructive to yourself and others, and so in love, wants to help you to live your life to the fullest by being in sync with him. Deuteronomy actually says it this way. It's Deuteronomy 4, starting with verse 35. After recounting all the crazy things that God has done in the life of the people of Israel, Moses says, he showed you these things so you would know that the Lord is God and there is no other. He let you hear his voice from heaven so he could instruct you. He let you see his great fire here on earth so he could speak to you from it. Because he loved your ancestors, he chose to bless their descendants, and he personally brought you out of Egypt with a great display of power. He drove out nations far greater than you so that he could bring you in and give you their land as your special possession as it is today. So remember this and keep it firmly in mind. The Lord is God, both in heaven and on earth, and there is no other. If you obey all the decrees and commands I'm giving you today, all will be well with you and your children. I'm giving you these instructions so you will enjoy a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. God loves you as people. He's proved it again and again, and he's giving you instructions so you can live life to the fullest. Choose him and choose life. When I gave you that summary of Deuteronomy, some of you were saying to yourselves, hmm, that's not what I would have said first about the message of Deuteronomy. And in fact, many of us think of the message of the Old Testament as God is angry all the time. And all the time, God is angry. <laughs> and that is really a misconception of what the Old Testament is all about. But also our kind of, what we, our general impression of the New Testament is also not very accurate because we think, oh, God is just this kind of wishy-washy guy who never judges. He's just love. But what Deuteronomy asks us to do is to be familiar with the word, to know it inside and out, and to live by it. So that's what we're going to hopefully do here this morning and get a clear picture of what exactly God is saying in Deuteronomy. Now, the large central section of Deuteronomy is what we call law, and it can be tough to know as Christians how to read uh, something that's called law, because we're under grace, not law, right? I mean, does this even apply to us? But law in biblical religion only exists in the context of grace. What do I mean by that? God had chosen and worked for and done powerful things for the people of Israel for hundreds of years before he gave the law. Not only did he not make a covenant with them, uh, so, sorry, so God made a covenant with them not because they were impressive. In Deuteronomy 7, uh, starting in verse 7, he says, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That's why the Lord rescued with you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Understand therefore that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. So he, they weren't the most impressive people, but also they were not very good. They were not very righteous. Uh, Deuteronomy 9 verses 6 and 7. You must recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good, for you are not. You are a stubborn people. Remember and never forget how angry you made the Lord your God out in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until now, you've been constantly rebelling against him. So we see that God's covenant preceded the instructions. It wasn't because they were impressive. It wasn't because they were good. God just loved them. Now, wherever in the Bible, in the Old Testament, New Testament, you see God encouraging us, as he does in Deuteronomy, to walk in his ways. He always says first, look at all I've done for you. And look at who you are inside the covenant. Now, walk in this way. Therefore, walk in this way. You'll see therefore all through uh, the scriptures. And when it is there, it's there to remind us of what God did first. So, it's not a contrast between law and grace. The provision of the law itself is a grace. It's not to get into God's love. God's love preceded the law but it's because we're already in that God gives us the grace of the instructions. So law exists in the context of grace. Okay, that sounds okay, but to say law is grace, what does that mean? Um, Chris Wright, uh, in his uh, wonderful commentary on Deuteronomy, tells us that Deuteronomy itself doesn't call the instructions that we see in the book Law, that's an English word, but it calls it instruction or teaching. Forgive me, a slight exaggeration, but it's like discipleship. So if we read a Tim Keller book, and Tim Keller is saying, you should do this, or your attitudes should be this, we're not saying to Tim Keller, oh, you want to you wanna trap me in some kind of law. You're, you're saying, Tim Keller, he's trying to help me understand God and his character so that I can live in light of his truth. And that's what we see in Deuteronomy, it's wisdom for life. God knows that sin ruins things, and he wants to save us from that. Recently, in the spring, clover started coming up in the yard, and the bees started coming to the clover. I have two boys, seven and eight. So when the bees came to the clover, the boys came to the bees. Now I said to the boys, boys, don't play with the bees. Now, there's two possible things that I can follow up in this story with. Either they obeyed me, and they did not play with the bees, or they did not obey me, and they played with the bees. Now, if they played with the bees, what happens? They experience the consequences of disobedience. <laughs> not only that, because we're, we have a shortage of bees and the pollination problem and everything, our community suffers from their, their disobedience, right? So personal and community consequences for disobedience. Now, if they uh, do obey, what do they experience? They experience the blessing of not getting stung. So when we look at my instruction to them, the instruction is the love. The instruction exists because of the love. The love came first. The instruction follows after as a sign of the love that already exists. 
it's not that I'm waiting for them to obey me and then I start loving them. No, I'm giving them this instruction because of the love. Now, in both instances, they experience my love. If they have the blessings of obedience, they're experiencing my love. If they have the consequences of disobedience and my discipline as a father, that's another way of expressing my love for them and for the community around because I don't want the bees to, to disappear and the pollination problem to, to uh, be exacerbated. So this is what we need to think about when we think about God's law in Deuteronomy. We are experiencing either way God's love, whether we obey or whether we disobey. Now, let me tell you what actually happened. Jake and Will, uh, they could not stop playing with these bees. And we had a week of at least once a day one of these guys getting stung. And we had some days that both of them got stung and some days that one of them would get stung multiple times. One of the things that happened that was kind of illustrative during the week was um, Jake started wearing gloves so he could have the, the, the joy of the sin but without the consequences. However, he was stung through the gloves, so he found out that that doesn't really work. So this is two, two sides of this coin here. We want the sin without the consequences. We also want the benefits of holiness without God. Now, if you have read through Deuteronomy you know, in the past or recently, you're probably saying to, to yourself, okay, Corey's talking about natural consequences here, but there's a lot about punishment in the book of Deuteronomy. It's not just that God lets us have the natural consequences. He adds on supernatural punishments, and that is true. God knows that natural consequences will never stop us from sinning. The natural consequences of getting stung did not stop Jake and Will from playing with these bees, and that is true for all of us. We discipline our children so they don't have worse consequences later, them and their communities. God disciplines us so that we don't have worse consequences both now and later for ourselves and for our communities. Okay, so that's cool, Deuteronomy. I can understand law is in the context of grace, and the law is a grace, but we're in a new covenant, so this stuff that we're talking about with Deuteronomy, how does it apply to us? There's the same relationship of love and law in the New Testament that we see in the Old Testament. God is complex, but he's unified. And what we see of his character in the Old Testament we do see in the New Testament. It gets clearer and clearer, but we do see the same intelligence, the same God behind these, uh, behind these instructions. In the New Testament, there are still ways of uh, thinking and acting that are okay and some that are not okay in the New Testament. Yes, we're not under the law, but jo Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's exactly what we see in Deuteronomy. God says over and over in Deuteronomy, if you love me, Act this way. I love you. That's why I'm giving you these instructions. If you love me, obey. And that's the same thing we see in Paul as well. He repeatedly lists things that we should be doing and not doing. He asked people to act in ways that are consistent with our identity as being in Christ. These instructions don't negate the grace of God in the Old Testament any more than they do in the New Testament. Obedience is a sign that the grace of God is in your life. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're not saved to live however we want, but we're saved to live by grace and a new way of life. Pastor Matt said it last week this way. He said, freedom is not no structure. Freedom is 
life-giving structure, and Deuteronomy is a life-giving structure for our lives. But there are differences between the covenants. Um, when we talk about friendship to engagement, engagement to marriage, as we did a few minutes ago, we can think about that and say, these are covenants. And although there's a through line of love and commitment that remains, there are different stages to the covenants. With each level of covenant, there's deepening levels of commitment, responsibility, and privilege. The basic commitment doesn't change. It grows. Yet each phase brings changes. There are some things that fall away. Rules that apply when you're engaged don't apply anymore when you're married. This doesn't reveal a weakening of the relationship. It reveals a strengthening of the bonds. So I want to pause here to say I, I'm not trying to t- turn you guys into Torah followers. Uh, Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus says. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What's the fulfillment of an engagement? The fulfillment of engagement is a marriage. The engagement falls away. God has, in Christ, fulfilled the law and fulfilled the law for us. In Romans 10, 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ made a way through his sacrifice for us to be reconciled with God. Even though we don't hold up our side of the covenant, Christ's death is him taking our punishment because we deserve a kind of death even more complete than simple loss of life. And he bore that punishment for us. Although we're no longer under the law that we see in Deuteronomy, we are under what New Testament calls the law of Christ. Again, I'm not setting you up to live in a new kind of law where you live according to this law for God to love you, no. But I'm just saying we're, we're living in a way that is reflecting what God has done in our lives. We're reflecting the, the grace of Christ that is on our lives. So God loves us and redeems us and frees us from sin and into righteousness. When we love God and obey his commands, we're saying in the most practical way possible, we love you, Lord. I can say I love you, Katie, my wife, many times, but when I do the dishes, that is a practical way that she knows that I love her because I know that she hates to do dishes. I don't mind it that much, but she really hates to do dishes. This is what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Obedience is the appropriate way of saying, I love you, Lord. What, is the, what does God say in the Old Testament? I don't desire uh, sacrifices. I desire obedience. So when you turn from your own way, something that you want to do, touching the bees, and you say, no, God said, I'm not to do this. I'm to do this. That makes God's heart happy. Because you just told him, I love you. And I'm going to live for you. You haven't achieved moral perfection. You haven't done everything that it would take to save yourself. No. But you are living in covenant faithfulness. You're saying, Lord, you wanted me to do this? I'm doing it. This means that the Old Testament law is incredibly useful to us today as believers because it reflects and shows to us the character of God and what he wants for our lives so we can know how to live in a way that pleases him. So having said all that, kind of framed the law, what do we actually see in Deuteronomy? So I want to 
share some highlights, some high points that we see in Deuteronomy, and also some pain points, some ways that Deuteronomy kind of rubs us the wrong way. Uh, Chris Wright, in his, his uh, commentary that I mentioned before on Deuteronomy, says this about the main theme of Deuteronomy. The clearest feature of Deuteronomy is its call for total loyalty to Yahweh as sole God. Let me quickly reread the, uh, the, the passage that we started out with. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands, tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now with what we've said so far, I hope that you hear this as a plea from God from a heart of love and not as a bunch of burdensome commands. What he's saying here is he is the one thing that's most important. It's not just that there is a God out there. We're monotheists. No. It's Yahweh is God. The one who brought us out of Egypt. The one who brought us out of our sins. The one who has shown his mighty power on our behalf. He is the one who is God. Keep him at the forefront of your thoughts. He's not something just for Sunday and then we go back to living however we want Monday through Saturday. He spills over and colors every aspect of our lives. Now we all know people who live like this with God being the one thing in their lives that's most important. They're computer programmers, they're, they're, they're teachers, they're builders, but the number one thing you know about them is they love the Lord. And it spills over and touches every aspect of their lives and the, the lives of those that surround them. When somebody lives like that, it is not a legalistic burden. It's loving and it's lovely and the vision that Deuteronomy is giving us is for a whole community of people like that now the temptation in the Old Testament was not to completely reject biblical religion it wasn't to stop going to temple the temptation that we see for the people of Israel and what we see for ourselves today is a temptation to be part-time lovers yeah we go to church and we also have these addendums and we have these uh, additions and we have these exceptions that we want to say, well, I do like the whole Christian thing, but I really think the Bible is wrong about this. While remembering God's grace, his powerful acts for us in the past, his love for us, and his desire for us to live an abundant life, is there something in your life that you're holding back on? You're doing and you know it's against the law of Christ. It's not consistent with the character of Christ. You're returning to the bees and they're stinging you again and again and you can't stop going back. Is there something that you need to confess to the Lord or to others? Is there somebody you need to confess to? Is there some area of morality that you really think, you know, secular the morality of the moment is right on and the Bible is wrong. Are you sitting in judgment on the word? Tim Keller wrote this uh, in an article he released this week. One of the features of our time is that churches are dividing over politics because people are finding themselves far more passionate and moved by political and social issues than they are by the truths of our faith and especially the centrality of the gospel of Christ. 
They become most exercised and emotional, not in worship, but over a flashpoint political and cultural issues. That is a sign of a spiritual vacuum in Christian lives, an emptiness. God is the one thing that we need to get right. If we get this right, everything else falls into place. What else do we see in Deuteronomy? We see that God is the source of all the good things in your life. Very simply, success and prosperity lead us away from God. Deuteronomy 8:16 and following. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant that he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. Chris Wright again says this. This statement, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy, could be read as a capitalist charter because it implies that whatever my power and the strength of my hand produce in the way of wealth is for me. That's, that is, it's mine to enjoy, to exploit as I wish. My abilities, my strength, my hard work, my cleverness, and my professional skills produced it. Ergo, it is mine. Self-exaltation and self-interest underlie this claim. Um, we're in Simsbury. We're very successful. Is there an idolatry of money or success in your life that you need to bring to the Lord and say, I've been thinking, I'm doing this. It's you, Lord. Do we need to acknowledge in some new way the, true, the one true God is the source of all that we have? Acknowledging that it's his, is there a way that we need to use our time, our treasure, and our talent for others? If what we have didn't come for us, is not for us. If it's not for us, who's it for? It's for others. Is there a way that we need to practically use those things on God's behalf? What else do we see? God's heart for the nations. We think of the New Testament. We see all over the place God's heart for the nations. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is something that is true in the Old Testament just as much as in the New Testament. Same God, same plan, different point in salvation history. God raised up Israel so it would be an example to the nations of a holy nation. It would, sh- it would show God to the people of the world. Now, that's the, that's the role that Christ fulfilled as Israel fulfilled it imperfectly. And in Deuteronomy, we see this. Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8, we see a big part of what God is doing is doing something in Israel's life and so that the nations will see. We see it again in a negative sense in Deuteronomy 28 when God disciplines Israel, that the nations see and are amazed. Now, eventually we'll see the people of God go out, but right now they're kind of brought in and they're centralized. My daughter Molly is in the Coast Guard. She's getting trained up. What she wants to do is fly helicopters and go you know, search and rescue missions and rescue people, but right now she can't barely even like take care of herself, right? So at the Coast Guard, they got them all there and they're training them, they're building into them, they're teaching them what they need to know so they can go out. And so right now we're in a different phase of salvation history. We're in a uh, phase of salvation history where we go out. Matthew thirteen thirty three. The kingdom of heaven is like some yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. That's us right now. We're out in every nation in the world and we're taking the word out. God did a work in Israel at that time and he's doing a work that is the same work but a different part of the process right now. Time would fail us to talk about God's protection of the weak. So many of these laws are restricting the power of the strong and making provision for the weak and especially the alien, the people who are not in the people of Israel. 
the people who are not ethnic Jews in that, at that time period. So many of them are the minorities, the oppressed, the uh, economically downtrodden, the fatherless, and the widow. In God's view, this is a, an indicator of the health of a community. How do we treat these people who are weak? The touching way that God wants to be included in our celebrations and the beautiful community that he describes when we have people who live according to these instructions. So, some of the high points. Now, let's look at some of the pain points, and one in particular is the war that Israel inflicted on the nations of the Promised Land. This is, this is tough for us. How does this fit in with God's heart for the nations? Well, God wants to reach out the nations. Now, you're, you're slaying all of them with the sword. Don't leave any of them alive. If we're understanding what happened at that particular moment in time, we have to understand that it's a judgment on sin. All the way back in Genesis, God was telling the people of Israel, I'm not sending you to the promised land yet because the full measure of the sin of the people who are there is not accomplished. I'm giving them time to turn. And in the New Testament, we see the same thought. First Peter 3 says, God waits a long time before he judges. So we will come to repentance. So in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't see a God who says, I will never judge. He says, I'm going to be waiting a very, very long time before I judge, but I am going to judge. Now, the war that we're talking about is a specific time, specific people, specific place, and a specific case. And so the principle we could carry away is not that we should now wage holy war, but that God will judge. He used the people of Israel back at that time, and he uses different ways today. There's another thing that we need to take away from this holy war moment is that it was a protection for Israel. Um, I am going to summarize a couple of scriptures, but you can just put them up on the screen, starting with Deuteronomy 7, verse 2. Basically, what God is getting at is, watch out. If you leave these people in the land, they will seduce you with their politics. They will seduce you with their religion. They will seduce you with, your, with their sexual ethics. And if you're not careful, it will get to where you will be okay with killing your own children. This is not an ethnic holy war. God told people, these people are sinful, and so you are going to get them out of the land. What happened when Israel did the very same things? He got them out of the land. Many foreigners, in fact, did find their way into Israel, and so they were now a part of the people of Israel. And God said, well, as a group, you guys are not following me. We're going to get you out of here. We're going we're to have a judgment on you. Walter Kaiser says it this way. God was not only offended by the nations surrounding Israel and Judah and acted in judgment on them, he acted the same way towards Israel and Judah for the same reasons. So today, what can we say about this? Well, we can say no to holy war because... We're not living in a theocracy, and we're living in a different time. We can, however, learn that we need to take very seriously our call to remain holy and set apart in the midst of constant temptation. We're sent out now, like leaven into the flour we talked about before, to reflect God's redeeming love and his ways. But as mature grown-ups, we need to discern where the culture uh, around us is fallen and needs to be totally rejected. We need to reflect God's love for the downtrodden, for the weak, for the immigrant, for the marginalized, rejecting the only the strong survive mentality. 
In Deuteronomy, we see a call to make God the one thing in your life. His heart's desire is for us to see his overwhelming love and choose to love him back. These instructions that we see in Deuteronomy are helpful for those who want to, who have decided to respond by making him the one thing in their lives. Hear Israel. Hear church. He is the one, the one you've been waiting for. He's the one who redeemed you, your first love. He's really the only one who truly loves you. He is your life. He is love. Turning away from him means choosing death. Choose wisdom. Choose his love. Choose life. Choose Yahweh. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word and how it brings us to a deeper knowledge of you. We pray that as we read it, you will guide us into all righteousness. You would guide us into your love. We would know you better and better. Amen.